Welcome to podcast number 22, Mania, Bulletproof and Blind. Now, I know in the past 21 episodes, I've focused mainly on depression and anxiety, the symptoms, repercussions, and so forth, uh, more than any other part of depression and bipolar. I've done so by design. Depression affects more people per capita than any other mental illness. It is the illness that most people can identify with who have never suffered mental illness. Most of us can understand at a bare minimum, the feelings of loss, despair, pain, and even emotional suffering, at least in the sense of a death of a close friend or a family member, a difficult relationship breakup, or the loss of a friendship. While depression is often more severe and long-lasting and certainly takes a much greater toll, it is something that we can at least understand at a base level if we haven't experienced it. Anxiety in, for the most part, can be also simulated in various ways, something of akin to taking a final exam, speaking in a public setting, trying to remember lines for a short speaking part, uh, walking into a room where you don't know anyone, and then having to think about that for weeks before it actually happens. There are a number of ways that it actually can be simulated, at least for a short period of time, and but not to the intense level of the illness. The feelings that come with depression and anxiety, while they might not, again, as be as intense or as long-lasting as mental illness, are felt at some level by the majority of the human race. Now, this doesn't mean that I think depression to be less of an illness, less difficult or more common, simply because the world has some understanding of, at a base level of the disease. Just because someone can empathize with our feelings doesn't make them any, our feelings any less real or less devastating or less of an illness. I want to make that perfectly clear as I begin to discuss the other side of bipolarity, normally referred to as mania. Now, the mania side of bipolarity is something that can be far more difficult to describe. And if I did so accurately, it may sound more like I was using stimulants not considered legal in the United States. Mania can accurately be described as a high. I've always described it as taking your best day ever as far as your mind and body was concerned and turning up the intensity. Now, if you've ever watched the television show called Limitless, then you might understand it just a little bit. Literally running at 150% of your normal operating capacity. My mind would think clearer, work harder, make better connections, and I could work longer hours. My creativity increased dramatically, and I did feel bulletproof. I guess the correct word is significantly overconfident. Now, I bet you're probably thinking, okay, I don't see the problem with this. Weren't a portion of the world's geniuses affected by mania? Now, I admit that it can be difficult to see a problem with this side of the mental illness. But there are good reasons why more bipolars, as a percentage of those mentally ill, commit suicide than almost any other mental illness. In today's episode, I am going to cover a few of the main issues and repercussions it can have as a member of the church. As I have said previously, I was very blessed not to have access to many things that youth do today when I suffered with mania. So much of what I relate comes from other sources that I am going to keep anonymous. I will do so at times talking as if I had personally experienced them, even though I have not. My reasons for the anonymity may be overly, overtly obvious to protect others who suffer. However, I have a firm doctrinal belief that when the Lord says the words, I remember them no more, speaking of our transgressions and mistakes, he means that not only will he not bring them to memory, but that we should not either. We are required to forgive others and ourselves and to practice the same doctrine as the Lord does, to remember them no more. 
So we shouldn't speak of our transgressions or mistakes or of others except for in general terms and only to provide help to other, other individuals. If we are going to speak of others' transgressions or mistakes at all, we should, we should, be, well, we should do so generally so that the individual does not feel that others would know it was them. My general feeling is that we'd even do this far too much. So yes, much of what I will say will be in general terms today, so that it has no relation to anyone. The point is to provide understanding, not point out mistakes or errors of another individual or myself, and to allow someone who might be passing through the same trial some understanding that there is a path forward, that there are other individuals out there that have experienced what they have experienced, and there actually is healing to be found. Even though I will be discussing some very serious issues, and the mercy that the Lord provides those who are suffering, my intent is never to provide for a license for someone to walk outside the lines of the covenants that they have made. So moving forward, you think that mania might, sound, might not sound all that bad. After all, who wouldn't want their mind to work a little better, especially when final exams roll around or a work project requiring significant time suddenly in creativity suddenly appears, or some other pressure situations. I wouldn't disagree if mania could be controlled with a switch hidden under my fingernail somewhere. Uh, the first difficulty is that mania-like depression cannot be controlled and comes when it decides to show up. Yes, it can be predicted a little because it typically comes after a depression, but other than that, it is going to show up and be in control. This means that your mind is going to accelerate and then not shut off. You will think for days at a time, but not just on one subject. Your mind is going to do something called skipping. You will think about several subjects at once, skipping between them rapidly. Your mind will rarely stop to engage a subject very long without intense mental effort. It's a little like watching 10 different movies at one time and speeding them up two times the normal speed. Now, when my wife and I first met, and then during our first years of marriage, this was one of the more difficult problems with our communication during the mania stage. My brain would skip from one subject to another without warning and without any introduction to the new subject. So I could be talking about my young son and then skip directly to something I learned in church and then skip something directly to something in college unrelated to the other two and then something I saw on the news all within a couple of minutes. The ideas and thoughts were not on one subject and often the subjects didn't even have connection. She had a great difficulty keeping up with my discussions. Uh, she did eventually learn that I carried on several conversations at one time, um, one at a time, but all at once too. It is strange to note that even after I had received my, the blessing that had healed me from the disease, uh, this wiring in the brain seemed to remain for some reason. So my brain still skips once in a while, even when I'm talking with my wife and in all kinds of normal ways. So you can't quit thinking, and not only can't you quit thinking, you have all kinds of desire and ambition to go out and do things. The inability to quit thinking then eventually leads to the next stage of mania. You create things, make plans. The problem with racing thoughts and overactive, ambitious desires is that they lead to action. Now, there's not generally anything bad about that. Thoughts create action, and in my mind, my mind would work through all types of random thoughts, creating all types of creativity, schemes, and plans. Now, plans and actions really aren't problematic if you can rationally work through all of the concerns and issues, the pros and cons, and decide then on a reasonable course of action, what is reasonable and what is not. 
However, Mena creates a final third problem that is far more difficult to understand for most people. You become bulletproof and then blind to reality. When you are depressed, nothing feels right. And when you are in mania, nothing feels wrong. Well, I, I say nothing, but mania exists on several levels, just like depression. So while you're in a state of mania, depending upon the illness and its development, you can actually believe things are real that are not. You can feel as though you could do and accomplish things that rationally, if you work through them, you know that you couldn't. Not only do you feel bulletproof, but mania, mania causes you to want to go out and do something. That actually isn't bad at all unless you are feeling quite bulletproof. Now, I know that I make this sound like I thought I could fly. Um, I did think about it, but I was never that blind or level of that illness to attempt it. But I know that people do believe those things or perhaps other things that would be physically damaging to their bodies. The invincibility can cause individuals to be reckless in their behaviors on many fronts, which is where you will, where you find the blindness comes in. This is where I didn't really have access, but knew many who were. You will find individuals with many episodes addicted to drugs, alcohol, sexual encounters, permissive, permissiveness in all areas of their lives. This is not due to some desire to do evil or a lack of inhibition. The mind simply can't work through the rational consequences of the behavior very well. They become blind to the consequences. Even if they can see the consequences, they believe that they can overcome them. In other words, most of us have that little voice in our head that knows the numbers and the stats in the background and what makes sense and at the minimum some type of survival instinct that holds us back. When someone is in a mania state, that little voice is overpowered by chemistry. Now, I'm not making excuses for behavior contrary to covenants. What I am saying is that the normal inhibit, inhibitory factors we all normally possess, both physically and spiritually, often get lost in a sea of overconfidence and high. Depending upon the level of that high, it can be difficult for the individual to determine right and wrong. Access to spiritual revelation can and is often very difficult. When everything feels right, it can be tough to make correct decisions based on spiritual promptings. If you can even receive a prompting and recognize it as such, to continue to feel the prompting can be almost impossible. And so it can be and is often dismissed by those who suffer. Even self-preservation instinct can be overwhelmed by the overconfident state of mind, so spiritually subtle promptings can easily get lost. This does not mean that one who suffers mania is overly lost to the sea of blind overconfidence. For me, the mania provided an avenue to learn the doctrines of the church, as I enjoyed learning history, doctrine, and the base guidelines within the operation, you know, within inside the covenants. The individual can use the boundaries, these boundaries learned, to navigate well in the mania state, meaning that while everything felt right, I could still use the guidelines as boundaries for my behavior. I just couldn't rely on my feelings. For instance, while I had never really desired any type of stimulant narcotic, I had always maintained a boundary that no matter what, I would not cross that line. And that included being with people who did use them. While it may not have been easy during mania to resist them, avoiding people and places and the access actually proved a very successful strategy. People who have mania and know that they have it should place restrictions on their behavior and lines that will not be crossed before the mania starts. If these decisions are not made before the mania, 
the odds of problematic and destructive behaviors increases significantly. Can't say this works perfectly, and it does depend upon the severity of the illnesses. Individuals with mania need to find methods to limit their exposure to dangerous situations and substances even far more than a normal individual would. Now, even with a good strategy and a good plan, at times mania may cause one to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and make a poor decision. It is very easy to remember what you have done when the mania ends, but unable to remember the high in feelings that caused it. Because of the tendency towards risky behaviors, remember the bulletproof and blind, mania can cause individuals to lose family, friends, stable relationships, and everything that would aid them in returning to a more normal life. Often friends and family do not understand the dangerous behaviors due to a lack of diagnosis, a lack of belief that the mental illness exists, or so forth. They isolate the individuals to protect themselves and perhaps other family members from the consequences of the mania actions. Once a mania ends, and they always do, the conscience returns to normal and then quickly to depression, and a terrible feeling of guilt can wash over the person's person for the actions that occurred during the mania. This is one of the major reasons that causes the suicidal effect. Now, often the embarrassment, guilt, and injury cause even a further isolation of the individual. I am often torn regarding one who suffers and those they injure. I believe that if they didn't suffer with the mania, they would likely be fairly normal in their lives and decisions. So the reality is, is it is a mental illness that is causing this weakness. But I also understand the injuries caused during the highs can be very real to those who are affected and the consequences of drug addiction and various other legal issues can be devastating to a family and home. I can't exactly tell anyone what to do if you know someone who suffers and who is close to your family or those around you. I know that a diagnosis is important and that medication is almost always required. I also know that enabling the addicted is also very problematic, but so is isolating the addict. What I can say is that to remain as close to the individual as you can based on all of the issues, legal, spiritual, and otherwise, is incredibly important in their lives. Bipolars do have a high rate of suicide when compared with depression with depression-only illnesses, and I believe that the isolation is one of the main contributing factors. You shouldn't place yourself in dangerous or abusive situations to help, and I understand the need to provide, protect, provide for protective barriers. However, a little bit of love and understanding does go a long way. Mania is as addictive as a narcotic. One of the main reasons bipolars don't stay on their medication is a loss of the mania side of bipolarity. Mania is also the reason so many bipolars commit suicide. One does not have to be religious or belong to an individually demanding church to understand how devastating it can be to alienate friends, family, communities, and end up quite alone. Bipolars are often the loneliest people that I've known. It's not because they, it's not because they decided to alienate their friends and family. It is because they have a great difficulty creating the necessary stable relationships that provide for belonging, love, peace, and happiness. Mania feels great, but it doesn't bring any stability, peace, or lasting happiness. Now, I am going to shift gears to talk about a very sensitive subject that affects almost everyone with mania. The subject is called hypersexuality. The subject is sensitive, 
as the law of chastity and the sanctity of the family is a very serious matter within the church, as it should be. It is the greatest power the Lord has given us. Hypersexuality often leads to serious clashes with this law of chastity. And I have known several bipolars that have left their church covenants because of this type of a clash and the addictive nature of the disease towards powerful stimulants. It is very difficult to maintain membership in a church and have a bipolarity illness. Hypersexuality is exactly what the name implies. The sexual desire of the individual is ramped up to several times normal level. Bipolar often shows up in individuals' life. Now, bipolar, when it shows up, often shows up in the individual's life when they're in early 20s. Although it can be a little bit later, and it even can often show up earlier like it did for me in the teenage years. This is part of one's life. Now, this is part of one's life, often where key formation of stable relationships, religious moralities, physical relationships, marriage, and children begin. Now, introduction of mania during this time frame can and often does destabilize many of the more important moral characteristics of the individual. All of this means, in layman's terms, bipolars have a tendency to seek risky physical relationships and stimulant addictions. Without significant care, guidance, diagnosis, and medication, the odds of a bipolar maintaining a stable life within church covenants can be very low. I was blessed to get this help through my wife, family, some good psychiatrists, and avoidance of that destructive path. This doesn't mean that I don't that I didn't feel the hypersexuality, but I had the tools to deal with it more effectively, and that is the key to success. Now I know that we don't talk about these type of things within the church very often. I'm not sure exactly why, except that we normally deal with these types of indivi cases individually. And generally, it comes during the repentance process. Now, I believe that the newer addiction recovery classes are a definite small step in the right direction. But competent help with the actual illness is going to bring far more success than addiction recovery courses. Leaders should be aware and conscious of the illness or the possibility of the mental illness and work with the family to better understand the nature of the issue so that the stable foundations can be provided for success. If you know that you are affected with bipolar, your bishop should probably know this. That's going to be entirely up to you. Let him know your areas of concern and what you are doing with medications and other support systems. I know that the law of chastity cannot be overlooked in any small degree. I also believe that the Lord understands what he has given to these particular individuals. Perhaps if you or someone you know is fighting with this illness and the symptoms of hypersexuality, or your spouse, or your friend, or your child, the best thing to do is understand that we simply don't understand everything in this world, nor do we really understand the brain chemistry all that well. We don't understand the fight that the Lord has given an individual neither the why nor the ultimate outcomes. We certainly can't condone nor support behaviors contrary to the Lord's design, but we can be compassionate, loving, forgiving, and understanding. We can have the humility to say that we don't understand everything, but we know that the Lord can provide a method for healing. This is as true for drug use, as hypersexuality, as, it, as for any number of issues the individual will face, and that also includes, at times, suicide. One thing that we can be sure of is that the Lord sees the battlefield from a much higher perspective than we do. So in the end, what can any of us do if we suffer trying to help someone who is, especially for the bipolar, the first is always a diagnosis. I think I may have repeated this as much as anything in my podcasts. Without it, you cannot find the healing you need. 
The second thing that I found with bipolar is that medication is very, very likely going to be valuable. Now, I can tell you that our Father in Heaven is a chemist at heart and can provide inspiration in the chemistry as he can provide revelation to a prophet. So I do believe in medications. I believe, as the brethren do, that eventually science and religion are not going to be two separate things. We're just lacking some knowledge to make the two flow together. Now, I benefited greatly from medication, both from the depression side, but also from the mania side. Now, yes, I had to take it, and I had to do other things to help myself. But when I did those things, the Lord made it significantly easier to function. I'm not going to tell you that my life was perfect when I did those things, nor am I going to tell you I did not have issues. What I am going to tell you is that I functioned much better. I don't know how to say this any other way. Learning to live with bipolarity is one of the most difficult things that I ever had to do, and I don't even know that I did it very well when I did. I have never experienced anything as difficult in my life up till now, and currently I have three autoimmune illnesses that significantly restrict me physically. I consider my autoimmune illnesses a cakewalk compared to the days of my bipolarity. So forgiveness is everything to someone suffering and trying to overcome. I'm not asking you to stay with an unfaithful husband or wife. I'm not asking you to remain in a terribly abusive situation. I'm not asking for you to do anything you cannot handle. But forgiveness does not necessarily require you to remain in the situation. If you can and you have the strength to remain in their life as someone who can help, whether that is from a distance or close, then I would ask you to give what you can. Now, I will say that I was saved by my wife, family, and individuals who chose to remain in my life as I worked through my mental and physical and spiritual challenges. Now, I'm going to admit that I was not an unfaithful husband or abusive or difficult to the point that the relationship with my wife didn't function, but there were difficulties of communications enhanced by the illness. Her relationship with me for the first few years of my marriage was far different than it is now. Somehow, more likely through the Lord's help and a lot of his help, the mental illness has strengthened our marriage rather than imploding it. I am certain that, again, the Lord had something to do with it and that we tried, but I know marriages where there was just as much trying and perhaps intervention with the Lord, and it didn't work out. What I'm saying is it saying it probably, probably far too many words is that mental illness is a trying disease that will take everything you have to give to it, and then it might take more. Whether you are a parent who is concerned for a child, a wife, a husband concerned for a spouse, or a friend, it makes no real difference. The question is, how can you help? The easy answer, the easy answer is love, forgiveness, and compassion. But it's also going to require difficult conversations, tough love moments, and the strength to see, it through, the, see through the disease and find that real person inside. It is not going to be for everyone, but for those who can help, they will indeed be the saviors on Mount Zion that the Lord talks about, who have mourned with those who have mourned and comforted those who needed comfort. Now may the Lord bless you in your quest to help those to overcome. And as always, remember that the Lord requires the fight and then he can do his part. We'll talk to you next week.